Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. This is the third in a short series about the psychology of writing. I, I wrote to a load of authors who've been guests on the show and asked them, what's the most unhelpful belief you have about writing? Not everyone I wrote to got back and some people who did get back said, you know what, Tim, that's actually a bit raw and I don't think I can answer, which is, is wonderfully honest and I respect that hugely. No one ever owes us a forensic examination of their innermost vulnerabilities. And it's easy for me to forget, actually, that because I tend to be very open on the podcast, not out of a natural inclination towards disclosure, but actually because my mental health has intermittently forced me into it. I, I carried around a lot of behaviours and beliefs uh, back in my past that today would probably fall under the rubric of toxic masculinity, which seems weird because neither I nor anyone who knows me or has ever met me um, has ever thought of me as being hyper-masculine in some way. I'm a bearded nerd who wears novelty Super Mario t-shirts and collects meeples. A lot of people don't even know what a meeple is. But one real benefit of getting depressed and getting anxious is it kind of broke me open, you know? I've had to learn slowly how to connect people. When you feel like life has no meaning and you might kill yourself, right, it doesn't suddenly seem very threatening to go, I feel really sad to a complete stranger, right? Because what could what could possibly be worse than thinking the world's ending anyway everything's really bad why would i care so it it kind of like frees you in a weird way and i've seen the sad consequences in my life of people who who can't do that right who don't have the opportunity or don't feel safe or just can't identify their feelings like just talking to someone who's prepared to listen and make an effort to understand you can help a surprising amount with things big and small even if it seems like the problems in question are basically insoluble like you're worried about getting older or your kids leaving home or a dream it looks like won't come true or death you know sometimes as my mum taught me what you need is a good cry a safe place to feel the feeling with its full force like a gigantic wave bearing down on you at the beach Boom. then there's a kind of relief in the aftermath and it strikes me actually that the act of writing a novel sometimes comes out of wrestling with these big sometimes insoluble worries I know when I was talking to Andrew Cowan he talked about this a little bit and how he wrote his novel Crustaceans you know it's about a fear of something terrible happening to your child and you can't really create a world in which that isn't possible but what you can is take these feelings can do is take these feelings and, and kind of grapple with them or just create a space for them to exist you know and I think a lot of fiction when I talk to writers actually a lot of topics that they end up writing about somehow arise out of a feeling they've had or a problem that they faced in their life at some point or another that was basically insoluble and a novel is a way of just taking that feeling, that problem, and sitting with it. Now, now, that, now, this might all seem a bit heavy for a writing podcast, but one, if you want a normal writing podcast, you're in the wrong place, my friend. And two, look, as I've said before, I feel things with a degree of intensity not present in every human being, particularly since I came off my meds recently. But by identifying these feelings in their acute form, me being a kind of medical skeleton of worry and sadness 
we can tackle lots of far less intense variations where, you know, maybe you're just feeling a bit flat or uninspired by your writing or you've got to a stage in your story and you're a bit stuck or a bit unsure or you haven't written in a while and you're feeling a bit guilty, a bit grindy, right? We don't have to pathologize any of these things. And I, and I should say, I don't wish to suggest that if an author doesn't splurge some dark struggle that blights every waking moment of their writing life they're somehow in denial or they lack emotional sophistication of course i tim clare have a very rich inner life but so do other people who are also quite content or mostly content most of the time writers relate to these things and themselves in a variety of ways and at a variety of intensities and i'm actually really really relieved to see when writers are able to say you know, I quite enjoy writing. That's great. It, it, there's there's hope for us all, right, if that's possible. And we can all actually do a little better at this. Even if we're, like, reasonably happy, we can, we can do a bit better. It doesn't have to be at kind of, like, clinical levels. We can all find ways to make the writing process more fun, to worry about what other people think a little less, while creatively challenging ourselves and, and recognising that, actually, we're quite tough. You know, we can take on quite a lot. And we have taken on quite a lot and a certain amount of difficulty of overcoming problems that aren't necessarily easy is good for us. We can gain skill, skills, we can build stamina, we can find sweet spots where we finally get to use this arsenal of abilities we've built up to its fullest. That's the flow state we talked about in episode one. And it feels great. And I should say, even if you don't go through any of these problems yourself, then you can learn about them so that you can be more empathetic if somebody in your life uh, faces some of these problems. It doesn't have to be all about us. Sometimes we can be there for someone else. And sometimes by learning about these things and by fully inhabiting and empathising with the kind of feelings that go on, you might find yourself down the line able to really help somebody who you care about a great deal. So there's always value. And that's true if you've had these problems yourself. You can think, well, surely this is only a negative to me. I feel sad. I feel anxious. It stopped me writing for X many years or whatever. Well, I just feel like life is fucking hooking you up with a bunch of skills that later on you might not realise you needed that allow you to reach out and help somebody else. And if you can do that, that is going to be fucking a billion times more valuable than writing any book. Challenge can be so fun. You know, if you build up all these amazing kung fu skills, you want that moment, right, where ninjas leap out of the bushes and you get to be like axe kick, flying elbow, back fist. Or I don't know, you can convert that into a ballet metaphor if it sounds too violent for you. But mastery or sometimes, you know, just operating at the edge of mastery and, and getting your ass kicked, right? When I played, you know, when I used to play before it, the game fell apart, but I used to play the card game Netrunner and um, you design your own decks when you're playing it and there's, you know, an element of personalization. But it was really, really exciting. It was a game where like, you'd lose to someone and you'd go, I didn't know you could use that combination of cards. Holy shit. And it was kind of quite fun to get your ass kicked because you oh, you learned so much more getting thrashed than you did winning. When you win, you just go, fuck, well, I guess that's proof of concept or fuck, I, I guess I got away with that. When you get like absolutely roasted, you're like, holy shit. I've got to learn those moves, right? You know, like wiping out on that huge wave and thinking, 
wow. Imagine putting together all the surfing skills necessary to tackle that. I wonder if I could do it. This is a mindset and a way of thinking about things that is available to all of us at any time. We have only to choose it. Over the past few months, I've got back into running after really not doing it for a while after my daughter was born. And I should say I've never been like a running guy. I've got flat feet. Uh, I've got not great posture. I've always been a bit overweight. You know, I've never been a running guy, but uh, a while back when my anxiety was really, really bad, and, and it still is, to be honest, but I, I just started running all the time. I was just like, I've got, to, people say exercise is good. And I ran and ran and ran until I wore holes in my trainers. Um, but then, I, you know, I've kind of fell out of it. And I've had the pleasure of getting back into it and experiencing over the last couple of months while I've been working on my anxiety you know exercise has been one area that I went to speak to like a guy at a gym a sports science guy and I've got to experience like noticeable growth in my speed and stamina and I never thought I would actually be able to see any improvement I just wasn't a sporty sporty guy but as I've progressed to slightly longer runs you know long for me I'm not pegging myself against anyone else I don't give a shit what other people do but I've got to see this amazing phenomenon where where I think I'm done you know I've been running for x kilometers and I think I'm done and I'm pooped and that's it all my energy's spent then what's this the fabled second wind suddenly You know, I make all these assumptions. They're completely these mental models about what I can and can't do and where my limits are and uh, what's coming up for me in the run and how my energy levels are going to tail off or whatever. And then all of a sudden there's this explosive power in my legs and I can accelerate uphill. And I I realise that a lot of my predictions about what I could cope with and what the rest of that run was going to look like, uh, they were wrong. They were just guesses. And yet, Yesterday, and I feel like I need to cop to this while writing or working on the novel I'm working on, I started to feel hopeless about the scene I was working on and, and, and by extension, the whole book. I was trying to write the the climax of my Goblins book and I was like, I, I don't, don't know what to write next. I'm not sure if this is any good. And then that thought chained to... I should know what to write next. You know, if I was a proper novelist, if I was like one of these other novelists that I've had on the show, I would know what to write next, which seamlessly led into, if I was a proper writer, I would know what to write next. And that became, I'm a loser, I'm failing. This book will never be finished. And then I felt these feelings of stress and anguish, as you'd expect if if, if some rando was shouting insults like that in your ear as you tried to work. And I felt, God, I'm so self-indulgent. I shouldn't feel low because I'm an author and I teach creative writing. But here I was feeling low, feeling anxious. So if an author and a teacher of creative writing shouldn't feel low or anxious or shouldn't get stuck or shouldn't feel downhearted or shouldn't lose faith in what they're writing, then what was I? So my next thought was, I'm not cut out to be a writer. That seems like a logical conclusion, right? If all of those things are true, I'm not cut out to teach writing. I am a fraud. Now, you can see and I can see taking these sort of out of the moment and uh, stripped of their physiological, uh, uh, I, I guess, mood music. You can see how utterly horrible automatic thoughts like that must be when they float through your mind if you treat them as 
reflections of reality, you know, plausible expert diagnoses that deserve to be weighted with reverence and acted upon, and not just opinions, habitual prejudicial responses, which um, may be with sort of worn grooves in our mind over time, uh, and that might have a positive intent, right? Don't do this, mate your mind saying it makes you sad and look you're never gonna get anywhere so better to stop now and save yourself the heartache it's like a it's like an overprotective parent or friend when we see someone we love you might have experienced this right taking emotional risks investing time and money into some project that might not come off working hard at something and we know it's risky and maybe the chances of success are at best ambiguous Maybe we're worried, you know, not a lot of people succeed in this particular thing you're doing. And some days they're really tired or they're not sure what they're doing. Part of us, you know, if we're compassionate, you want to step in for that friend and go, you know, you know, you can quit at any time. No one will think any less of you. You don't have to put yourself through this. Your self-worth is is not contingent on getting this thing or winning this prize or doing this project. All of which is true, right? Like, actually, that's not, there's no lie there and there's no negative intent. But isn't part of the reason we want to step in, isn't part of it, if we're honest, about managing our own feelings of anxiety, our own sense that if someone we love is risking something in pursuit of a goal, a bit of our emotional well-being is on the line too. But we don't have any control. What would it take for you or me to say to that friend or to say to ourselves instead look you are amazing I'm so in awe of you taking on this challenge you always were amazing and you always will be and whatever I can do to support you towards this crazy dream right let me know Let's fucking do it. Put the world on notice. The baddest motherfucker in history just joined your pit crew. What's the difference in energy between those two things? Don't worry. You can quit. And let's do this. And which do you habitually say to yourself? So I went to see Garth Nix and Joanne Harris read an event in Norwich last weekend and it was awesome. I didn't know they were going to be in town until like 16 hours before the gig. And I was like, holy shit, well, that's going to have sold out. It hadn't. I got tickets, went with my friend. Um, it was just it was awesome. Really, really good fun. If you want to listen to the episode where I chat to Garth about his writing, please go do that. Um, but I wrote to him and asked about his most unhelpful belief about writing and this was something he ended up talking about in response to one of the questions at the event as well but here's his reply to me quote I guess one of the things I've always had to manage and I do is the strong feeling usually about halfway through a book that it is all crap and I've somehow forgotten how to write but I tell myself I always feel this way and that if I go on and also go back and revise it will turn out not to be crap after all so I push on and invariably some chapters later and some revisions and some time later, I think it's not that bad. And then later, after still more work and after more chapters done, I'll think it's OK or may even think it's pretty good. End quote. Now, I have to say I'm reading his new one, Angel Mage, and it's fucking rad. It's really good. So, you know, 
he's he's you know he's not I mean I know he's like I know he's got fans all around the world right so I don't need to step in and go well I, you, you know what I think the I think the Knicks lad is gonna as God promise I I but anyway I've read his latest one it's I'm well I'm halfway through and it's awesome and, and this is a fantastic uh I'm really grateful to girls for sharing this because um I don't I really don't think he's alone not Everyone lets themselves get far enough into a novel to experience this feeling. Sure, some people just stop, right? Actually, when I asked on on Twitter about this last year, it seemed to me like different writers tend to hit walls at very different points in the novel writing process. As far as I can tell from my very unscientific process of asking about this, um, there is no classic wall point in a novel it hits people at all different stages for some the wall is the blank page you know that's terrifying they they they, they, they before they write down anything they will just buzz around the idea of writing a novel nervously for ages and it takes a lot it takes it takes a lot of momentum and a kind of they almost have to be sort of like a a pregnant cat like absolutely groaning with this litter before they can break through and start writing for some writers it's like the 10 to 15,000 word mark when the initial zap and pizzazz of whatever exciting opening they dreamt up has worn off, when that initial adrenaline rush of improvising and sending in a naked priest with a gun and then the other person rips off a mask to reveal gills and tentacles or whatever, that kind of spark has has kind of petered out. They've, they're, they're not surprising themselves anymore and they have to go, OK, what next? How do I turn this exciting dynamic opening scene into a plot that can sustain the story for 70 80 100,000 words for some authors it's about 30,000 words you're not halfway yet but you have done a substantial amount of work right and you hit some snag some ambiguity some problem you identify something that just doesn't feel quite right to you and you think inevitably god i'm not even halfway if I'm struggling struggling like this now, what's the rest of it going to be like? Because you're extrapolating from your experience thus far writing this particular story where the ease of enjoyment of writing describes a downward arc. You know, you start and you're like, whoa, whoa, I'm creating something. Look at me. And, um, and, it, and it's got progressively harder as time goes on and you have to make... You know, you start committing to different realities in the story and, and, and now things have to agree with each other and you have to work out if this is true, then how could this be true? And maybe you've spotted an inconsistency that's bothering you. And on your imagined graph projection of enjoyment, um, enjoyment is dropping below the y-axis to minus figures by the time you hit 50k. And you kind of think to yourself, can I do this? Do I care about this particular story enough or was it was it just a was it just a fling, you know? Is this likely to result in a good novel or is it all just wasted effort? Should I spare myself pain and wasted time and quit now? For some authors this wall comes in the final third. I'm having that now. You're over the midway point and at first you get this little morale boost where you think, woohoo, oh gosh, what's left is less than I've already done. Oh my goodness, surely momentum will carry me over the line. And you imagine it would almost be more work to quit and to just finish the damn thing off. But then all your plot chickens come home to roost. Niggles that were just bubbling away on the back burner start boiling over. Some inconsistency with character motivation must now be 
dealt with. Promises demand payoffs. The pressure's on to bring it all home and maybe there's a bit of world building you did early on kind of frivolously that now is creating a massive plot problem. And this is the point where you're supposed to write the best, most exciting scenes in the book, right? And you suddenly think, fuck! I was just kind of winging it up to this point, following the characters, letting them get into trouble. That was fun, wasn't it? What a hoot that was. I was seeing where things led me. It's like... You didn't put money aside all year and suddenly you get your tax bill. And for some people, the wall is at the very end. It is redrafting. It's that desire to completely revise and pull apart and start from the foundations. It's the realisation that submitting these words finally appearing inked onto a page can't be infinitely deferred. You know, at some point you have to commit to this and now the standard by which you're judging what was a game up until now isn't just a first draft. It, 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 it really is. This is going to become part of the Tim Clare canon. You know, this is what's going to survive of me when I'm dead. This is what I'll be judged by. This is what I'm asking people to part with their money in return for. This is how I'm theoretically going to keep a roof over my head and feed my daughter. Does this meet the criteria I've been shooting for all these months, all these years? Now, as you can probably tell... I have and still do experience anguish at all of these stages. I think quite often I smack into every single one of these walls to a greater or lesser extent. And 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 look, don't get me wrong, I don't think that's healthy, wise or even necessary. And I am working on it. I, I, I don't want to... I'm always very, very cautious about going, that's just the kind of writer I am. This That's what's known as the Popeye school of psychology. I am what I am. I, I don't think any of these tendencies, I, don't, I have not yet seen any evidence that any of these tendencies are hardwired into us. We can overcome them. They are based on a series of habits and those habits are based from choices and repetition. And we can retrain ourselves and the responsibility for that and the capacity for that are within us. It might be very, very hard. We might need some help to get the right skills to be able to retrain ourselves and... Those tendencies and the possibility to fall into those maladaptive thought patterns may always be there to a certain degree. But I fundamentally believe, and just because I'm not very good at it, doesn't affect my belief because I can see data elsewhere. I fundamentally believe that we can change these things. So I would encourage you to always question anything that treats any of your habitual ways of dealing with something within writing and the feelings that arise as somehow uh, crystalline rather than fluid. But a bit of neurosis or worry at any one of those stages, you know, like mild feelings of uh, negative arousal, is, is far from abnormal. I'd say it's it's probably the standard for most authors. I've not yet met one who experiences absolutely no worry at any stage or at least who admits to that uh, for garth this problem occurs somewhere around the middle he, you know he says i guess one of the things i've always had to manage and i do is the strong feeling usually about halfway through a book that it is all crap now i'm sure he's able to contextualize that through experience as he says but it's still a strong feeling that it's all crap that that you know, that mu that must be tricky when you go through it. I know it's tricky for me and I wouldn't want to underplay these things either, especially when your career kind of feels like it's riding on it. 
Because we know what a finished book looks like, right? You know, but, but unless you're meeting up with writers every week and sharing work in progress and discussing your feelings, you have vastly more experience of seeing polished, finished novels than in various chrysalis stages you know your main experience for some people you know i'm quite odd in that i worked as a freelance editor and so i've seen like over a hundred full novels that aren't finished that need editorial feedback right but even then someone's worked on that for months stroke years it's actually quite rare to see chapters in the raw straight off the production line still being worked on in their kind of molten stage before they cool into a lasting monument and um, it skews our sense of what the writing process actually is you know imagine that right like imagine seeing like a lovely hairy fuzzy caterpillar and thinking shit this isn't a butterfly. It doesn't even have any fucking wings. Oh, God, imagine if someone saw this. Jesus Christ, the shame, the shame. But that's not, as I know you know, how butterflies work. With writers, it's harder because, you know, sometimes you can drop a single sentence, right? Sometimes the very first sentence that hits the paper when you work on a new project... Sometimes that sentence is a good one. You know, that can be the killer, right? You write, you you come up with in the, you know, at 3 a.m., you wake Bolt up, right, with a chill-ass line for a story. Like, just something makes you go, God, I want to hear what that story's about. That's a cool way to start a story, right? You just get this banger of an opening line. Whoa! It's a this tasty bit. You know, there's voice, there's flavour, there's something surprising in it that twists the reader's head right, right round without being sort of cheesy or overly sort of like reaching towards novelty. It's just cool and you go, oh wow, I want to follow this voice. Um, And that's really hard, right? That's really hard. So we can forget when because it's, it creates an ambiguity we can forget when we write the good lines down that this is not the book and getting published and selling millions doesn't really have any effect on your propensity to to make that mistake when you do write well you know the danger is not when you write dog shit necessarily it's when you have a little purple patch you have a, you hear a little run and you go whoa, whoa I think this is this is going pretty well this is a uh, I think I might have cracked it, guys. It's really easy in that state to commit this kind of category error. It's not like the lovely distinction between a fuzzy caterpillar and a butterfly, where we can see that those are two different things, right? And we're going to have to wait for them to be created. It is very easy to experience this kind of thoughtological illusion because now there's an agent, an editor, and readers who you imagine yourself trudging out to shamefacedly and handing this parody this dreadful satire of a novel to with bits that don't work like a, a piece of cardboard with the word story written on it misspelt in shaky magic marker and they're gonna go what's this i thought you were the magic hen who lays golden novels this should be effortless for you i feel like i would do really well perhaps all of us would to stick a couple of post-its up on the wall or ideally in the corner of my laptop screen saying it's just a first draft dummy. In, in fact, I, I just noticed. <laughs> oh, so I just noticed, um, in fact, behind my laptop here uh, written on my mini whiteboard for probably about a year now. 
are, has been the words, learn through doing. First draft equals explore, break things. So actually, it turns out simply writing something down and exposing it, exposing yourself to it every day doesn't magically make you believe it, which is probably a good thing, isn't it? But I, I think part of the reason writers might be, if not uniquely, then particularly vulnerable to this sort of error is is isolation. Humans are social creatures and writers spend a lot of time alone. We make so many judgments about our own behaviour, our values, our self-worth by triangulating with our peers. And, and when, when you're not around many people a lot of the time, then the few social interactions you do have have a disproportionate weight. And sometimes you make up that desire to be able to guess whether what you're doing is OK or not through books or the Internet. There's a, there's a frequently cited paper by uh, Dr. Susan Higgs called Social Influences in Eating, where she pre presents evidence that we eat differently alone than when with others and that we're highly influenced by the eating norms of people we identify with. So that's an interesting sort of little caveat there that when you identify with people, particularly when you say those people are like me, either they're culturally like me or they're ideologically like me, right? You will match their eating norms more than if you go, well, those people aren't like me. I don't identify with them. Isn't that weird? Quote, one reason for this is that conforming to the behaviour of others is adaptive and we find it rewarding. End quote. A 1981 study by uh, Rake Straw had participants watch a training film in which either there was someone doing a task badly or someone doing a task well. People who had never done the task before had their performance significantly impacted by whether the model in the movie did the task well or badly. But everyone involved used the person they'd seen on the training film, quote, as a standard for evaluating their own performance, end quote. Now, if the results uh, in these two studies are generalizable, and I, you know, I think they're reasonably uh, well-regarded studies, this means that if you don't regularly meet with a creative writing group, if you don't get to see the work in progress of lots of other writers at different levels, your benchmark, the standard by which you evaluate your own performance, the training film which you've watched before you attempt this task, is going to be other authors' finished public published work. Or even your own, right? Even your previous published books. Do you remember when we talked about missed experiments in episode one? That's the Montreal Imaging Stress Task, where there would be a progress bar ticking down on one side of the screen that supposedly showed how other participants had done, but it was rigged to always be ahead of yours. And how having that stimulus reliably induces stress in participants. Cortisol release, the endocrine system goes, fuck! That's the technical term. More power, more power, but you don't need more power for, crea for a creative task. And instead, the whole thing becomes harder, more stressful, and your performance drops. Ugh. What a pickle. So part of the solution to this because I do, no, I don't don't ever want to just present you with horrible problems and then go, sucks being a human. <laughs> you know, we want to look towards solutions, even though you know, as somebody who still suffers from anxiety and depression, I am very much a work in progress, and I'm slowly, slowly learning what works for me. But I think something that might 
feasibly help based on this is to create a community you know i've talked about this on the show before this idea that the three jewels of buddhism were the buddha the sangha and the the buddha the dharma and the sangha i don't think they have to be in any particular order but the sangha being community and when we had a Nikesh on the show and he talked well he's been on twice but the second time when I interviewed him he talked about the importance of finding your community and other writers who you can bounce ideas on and just you know who you can just can support you and who you can you can support I think it's important to find other writers reach out to them and go hey buddy let's vulture on this shit let's talk about our writing share our concerns and triumphs and our difficulties let's establish healthy norms I mean I wouldn't ever say to somebody Hey, do you fancy establishing some healthy norms? It sounds like a weird come on, doesn't it? But nonetheless, can we establish some healthy norms? Not in a weird, not in a sex way. So we can hold ourselves accountable in an, an, in an adaptive, or psychologists love that word, adaptive, actually damn useful way. Instead of rigging a machine that sounds klaxons and fires a custard pie into your face every time you experience the slightest intimation something might be less than perfect with your rough first draft but at the same time i realize and appreciate that's not always possible or certainly it takes time you know it might be more challenging for you depending on your life circumstances but another thing is just to make sure you keep your early drafts that's another thing i might be worth trying right and and mark at what stage you were when you wrote whatever section it is i certainly date all the little scribbles i do in my notebook and keep um incremental drafts don't get rid of your earlier drafts even if you're keeping them on laptop you know save a separate file for the redraft and maybe from time to time uh, although it, I understand it might feel a little bit painful, go back to those early drafts to remind yourself what a work in progress, what your works in progress actually fucking look like. And and that is something that will become very, very helpful, I think, later in your career when maybe you have a few successes and knock a couple of stories out of the park, right? Can you go back and go, oh, these are quite shit to begin with. Another part of this problem, and I don't mean to sound like I'm condemning or shaming anyone here, it's just human nature, but isn't one issue simple impatience? Like you've got this genuinely cool, genuinely amazing story burning a hole in your brain. You can see these flashes of brilliance. Oh my God, it would, the finished thing has gone on, boo, chill. And it's going to take weeks, months, maybe a year, maybe more than a year to get it all down and work out how this... One image you've got in your head, this weird tableau you can see in your mind's eye links up with this character concept you've got knocking around and a little bit of story. Maybe not all of it fits yet or there's a piece that might have to be changed or some element that hasn't yet come to you. And when there's gaps and delays and uncertainty, anxiety fills those gaps. It flows in like water through the kind of like grikes in rock, that unknown area. Why? I can't finish it. What if these characters never get to live and their story never gets told because I couldn't thread the needle? And I don't think those thoughts are silly and I don't think you're silly for feeling them. They're very real thoughts, but that doesn't make them rational. That doesn't make them logical. It's performance anxiety. So I've been watching some documentaries about ultra running, people doing 50, 100, 200 mile races. I cannot imagine managing to do a marathon, let alone 
a double marathon, more than a quadruple marathon, eight consecutive. I mean, it's more than eight. Is it like nine? Is 200 miles like nine consecutive marathons? I don't know, but it's a lot, isn't it? And so much of it, when I'm hearing them talk about it, it seems to be this incredible interface between training, you know, doggedly building up the skills and physical capacity to be able to cope with what's thrown at you to problem solve and mental stamina. The ultra runner uh, Courtney Derwalter talks about entering the pain cave and all you can do when that happens, she said, you've got two choices. You can quit or you can keep going. And if you keep going, eventually, you don't know when, but eventually you will emerge from the other side of that pain cave. There is a way out. And when you're in it, you've got to keep going. Repeated experience can give you some data on that kind of thing that you can use. That's one of the benefits of taking Neil Gaiman's famous advice to finish things to heart. <laughs> I mean, I was. Neil Gaiman and um, Shang Tsung from Mortal Kombat. Look, if you were bought, you don't get to see what would happen if you had just pushed through. In machine learning theory, I've been chatting to a few um, AI specialists to find out a bit more about anxiety. I've heard this described as aversive clipping, right? So an AI hits an aversive stimulus. Ugh, my words per hour ratio has dropped off. Oh, no, I'm not enjoying this as much. And instead of persisting with the same behaviour, drops that entire tree of strategies and tries something new. Now, as a heuristic, this works quite well quite a lot of the time. Say a robot is learning to navigate a maze. If I turn left, I bump into a wall. At some point, you want the robot to abandon all strategies that involve turning left at that particular junction. Indeed, in psychology, particularly in neuropsychology, perseverance is sometimes dis defined as, quote, the inability to shift between modes of thinking, end quote, or to let go of old models. And it's associated with damage to the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. If the lever that used to give you a food pellet every five times you pecked it no longer gives out food... Or if the maze that you've been running through to get a piece of cheese has been switched around so there's no longer an exit where there was an exit. At some point, it's adaptive for your brain to learn, oh, this strategy no longer works. And for various neural pathways reinforcing that behaviour to stop firing. But the problem with aversive clipping, as with any kind of like general rule of thumb, is... Sometimes it doesn't apply very well and sometimes it works very, very badly. And in the case of anxious and aversive stimuli, it can prevent us or the AI from getting new good data when circumstances change or if we overgeneralize it into scenarios where it doesn't work as well. So I had the pleasure of staying with a really lovely couple in Glasgow about 10 years ago. And um, this guy told me about a time they'd been out on the beach cockle picking. He'd done it loads of times. His wife was completely new to it, though. But after a while, he noticed that she was getting way more cockles than him. And he thought, what's going on? I'm the expert, right? I'm the cockle picker here. But then he noticed that he knew from experience what a cockle looks like. So he'd walk along and he'd wait till he spotted one. His wife had n no flipping idea. 
So she was just turning over every single shell. Is this one? Is this one? Is this one? And often she spotted one that he'd missed. Over time, because she had no expectation of what a cockle looked like, she was finding loads more. As Shinreo Suzuki famously said, quote, In the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities, but in the expert's mind, there are few. End quote. Who would have thought that Suzuki Roshi was actually a pioneer of AI learning theory? So when writing a novel, maybe you hit a tough patch, right? And you're not sure how to move it forward. So you shelve it. You go, oh, I can't do this. You actually, you think, you know, actually that idea wasn't as good as I thought it was. That's why it's become difficult. And you start something new. And this new thing is immediately easier to write. And oh, goodness, what a relief. So you get two reinforcements there. You get the negative reinforcement of something being taken away, the removal of a stressor, those feelings of inadequacy and confusion. Retreat the moment you decide to give up. Oh, phew. Lovely. God, I know that feeling so well. That's, you know, any anxiety sufferer knows when somebody cancels an appointment on you, you're supposed to meet up and they go, I can't make it. When a gig gets cancelled, I don't have to don't have to negotiate trains. Oh, it feels lovely. And then in this scenario, you also get the positive reinforcement of the return of these feelings of competence and enjoyment and discovery as you dive into the new project. And the fiendish part is you never get data on what lay beyond that tough patch, that difficulty, that plot snag. You don't even get data on whether it was a patch rather than, for all you know, it could have been this barren, barren wasteland stretching infinitely past the horizon. This book will never get better. This is always going to be dire. You don't get the payoff of pushing through, resolving problems, learning that the worries you had were temporary and specific rather than permanent and global. And, and you don't get to train yourself in those endgame skills of novel writing. You don't get to learn about how to redraft or diagnose and fix structural problems or synthesise parts of a novel to make a coherent whole. You don't get to practice doing difficult things and building your muscles. Writing a novel is sometimes fucking hard. And it is entirely possible, I'm sorry to say, that you won't get credit for how much work you put in or the quality of the finished thing. So all you can really do if you want to have control is, is, is to make it a challenge for yourself and make yourself personally accountable and, and praise yourself every time you turn up. Don't wait for other people to recognise how awesome you are. Like, I pushed through... 50 walls, 100 walls with the ice house. I found parts so hard to write. I felt so broken by it. I, I am not constitutionally at the moment, the way I think about the world, um, naturally made to write novels. I, I, I find it fucking difficult. It brings me up against myself and some of my unhelpful beliefs again and again and again. And I kept going. You know, I, I don't take pride in the fact that I made it hard for myself. I, I think that there's something to be said for looking at ways of making it easier rather than just always taking satisfaction in pushing through. You know, I think there's something to be said. We're going, could we 
you know, is there a way that we can drive with the handbrake off, Tim? Um, otherwise, you end up just start. You know, I, I enjoy cold showers. I enjoy challenging myself. But you've got to be a little bit careful. You're not turning into completely self-aggrandizing territory here. And, you know, you're <laughs> jumping into freezing ponds in your underpants going, a parasite obeys. A man chooses. You know, like, come on, mate. Like, <laughs> you don't always have to make everything super difficult for yourself. But I'm fucking proud of myself for writing that book because there was I had every excuse to give up. And I fucking didn't. And so few people in the world could have done that. It is also happens to be my best work. I don't feel the need for false modesty here. I'm just happy to say this, right? It is fucking awesome. And I'll be able to look back on it for the rest of my life knowing I fucking smashed it and I did not compromise. Even though I was anxious, even though I was struggling, even though I had panic attacks, I turned up and I did my best work and I kept going until it was right. And as a result, I made something no one else has or frankly could. And there is a stability in that. Whatever else happens with a book, there is a stability in knowing you did your best and you did it how you needed to. Also, I do wonder whether we could employ another technique from cognitive behavioural therapy here. It's one that I've always struggled with, so I'll be completely honest. I've never applied it myself, but accountability time here. Let's agree. If I share it with you now, I promise on my honour as a podcaster, I promise you this, I'm not lying to you, that I'm, I'm, you could write to me, message me, make sure I did it. I will at least go away and try this once after I've recorded this, so I'm not being a complete hypocrite. Right, so some therapists espouse this idea of creating a designated time for worry. So we're not engaging in thought suppression proper. This isn't about like just don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. What we're saying is, okay, worries, you deserve your turn at the mic. I'm not going to continually fight with you while I'm doing other stuff. So I'm going to clear the decks. You deserve to be listened to. What we'll do is every day we're going to put aside half an hour for worry and that time is going to be devoted exclusively to worrying i'm not going to be on my phone or running or talking to someone else or watching tv we're gonna worry and if you like i can write write down the worries i can really flesh out some of the what ifs where you think this is going um but we're not gonna we're not gonna be challenging these thoughts we're not gonna be wrestling with them or grappling with them I'll just listen to my worries, identify them, feel them, feel the associated feelings. And um, if I like, I can record them. Then when you're half hours up, you stop. Now, obviously, that is the tricky part. This is one of the reasons I didn't bother doing it because I was like, I can't fucking stop worrying. He said, never having actually tried applying the technique. I was like, I can't fucking do you. What do you mean stop? What do you mean stop worrying? That's like just saying to me, Tim, why don't you like poop out your eyes? Stop worrying. That's not something I'm physically capable of doing. My entire life is worrying. So I always imagined like I wouldn't be able to comply. But this time I'm going to give it a go. Right. I'm going to at least give it a go. We've got to try these things and also accept that you might not do it perfectly first time. That maybe you don't just give things one go and then go, fuck that. Give up. Right. Try it for a week, see what happens, right? So, but I'm going to give it a go anyway. I think I think one thing it might do 
if you get, have this allotted worry time, it, it gives you a get out clause where if you're worrying while writing or while doing anything for that matter, you don't just have to tell yourself to shut up, which is like if you try and suppress an anxious thought, we talked about this last episode, it's anxiogenic, right? It makes the worry louder because the worry's going, there's a problem, um, there's a problem, um, can, can we sort this out, please? Hello, hello, there's a problem. If you go, I'm not listening to you, it's going to get louder. It's going to get more anxious. Whenever someone tells me, you know what, like, when I'm anxious and someone says there's nothing to worry about, I just feel like I'm stuck in the car, the room, wherever we are with like sociopaths i'm like no you don't understand i don't look at other people not being worried and think maybe i shouldn't be worried i look at other people not being worried and going everyone is fucking asleep at the wheel what the hell is going on i am the only person i am steering planet earth with my mind here while everyone else just dawdles about they oblivious to the hell that is about to plunge down upon us, right? It just makes the worry louder. So you can be in this scenario if you have designated a worry time. You can be like, cool, this is important. This is so important. I'm actually going to clear space in my schedule purely to feel this very worry. Let's have this freaking worry. I agree with you. That's quite a good counter to any worry, right? I agree with you. Yet, Let's clear the decks and let's have a good worry. I am making a space in my schedule. We're going to deal with exactly this. That is quite an unusual feeling for a worry to feel listened to, to feel heard, to feel understood. It's got to be sincere, right? But you go, okay, I'm going to... Cool. Worries? Yeah, you're right. I've ignored you for too long. Let's hear it. I was like, fuck. Okay. Okay, cool, man. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I just... I'm just feeling really amped at the moment. No, no. No more ignoring you, worry. Let's fucking do this. I think that is, you know, if you get anxious, it's a good alternative strategy. It's certainly not what you've been doing so far, which doesn't work. And it might be, you know, if you do actually start having this worry half hour, it might bring up important to-do tasks that you can literally, having time to worry and write them down, you can literally just, you know, you can resolve them at the end they're not to do tasks that always seem to come up while you're doing something else and then you forget them and you know sometimes it might be like oh shit i'm really worried about this you know we've in this in our house we've had a leaky roof for ages and you know a bit of wood had rotten rotted through inside and the it was just it, it, we could tell every now and then there'd be a drip and i could tell it was getting worse and there was probably rot behind uh, where it was getting in and it was a source of stress and you know what? When that stress ended, when I fucking took the made the effort to phone someone up and go, hey, can you come around and have a look? And then maybe we can get the hole fixed. It was some stuff you you can just decide to do. And actually, it's only when you give yourself the space to worry that you can go, actually, worry, you've got you make a pretty good point here, worry. Actually, yeah, let's deal with that. Right. So sometimes there's bits of it that you can act on. And giving yourself the space to just fully concentrate on the worry, um, you can evaluate it in terms of your own values and priorities, which I think is the other thing when you start to feel very anxious all the time. You lose faith in your judgment completely. You just think, I'm an idiot. I worry about bullshit all the time, so I won't listen to any of my worries. More all or nothing thinking. And that's horrible. And it makes the worry much, much worse.
like this is what I'm trying to say, right? Sometimes worries have a point. They're not inherently maladaptive or bad. There I go with uh, talking about adaptivity and maladaptivity again. The only problem is when these worries make us feel like shit or they get in the way of what you want to do, your normal functioning, your sleep, your happiness, which, by the way, you deserve to be rapturously joyful in your life. So I hope that's elucidated this important area a little bit more. I've got some physician heal thyself work to do, I think. You know, I, I really love doing these episodes because a lot of it is messages to myself and I think I need to sort this out a little bit more. I really do, because I'm super mean to myself and I don't think it helps. And I think I can experience those worries without without shouting at myself. Actually, yesterday, after worrying and grinding and feeling awful and catastrophic and ashamed, I, I talked to a friend, which, which really helped, actually. And I realised some of my feelings were wrapped up in something completely unrelated to the writing, which is my daughter growing up. Me and my wife had just visited a nursery that day that she might go to in the new year my daughter not my wife and I was in bits emotionally thinking about it you know I am in that dad phase at the moment of like they grow up so fast and I'm scared that I won't be necessary anymore and I'm also scared of being a clingy helicopter parent as well because I want my child to grow and thrive and be happily independent and it's rough man but I ended up going back to that chapter and taking a slightly left field approach to the bit I'm working on, having procrastinated for ages, but also having read like this other novel that I've kind of got in the background that I maybe read out a tiny bit of on a show ages ago. Um, and the voice of that ended up like influencing what I was writing. And I ended up uh, writing a scene from another character's perspective in the story and because it's a first person narrative written in this kind of uh, very very specific voice um so i ended up writing from another character's perspective and it, i ended up having a blast it was really enjoyable this kind of silly scene that might be my first attempt at sexual farce hooray for me so even on a day when i was convinced it was all over there was something glorious at the end of it. And I think this might be a little a little secret about why we do this. You know, I'm talking about, oh, isn't writing hard? Isn't it rubbish? And of course, I'm, I'm a bit like a cop on these episodes because I'm getting authors to kind of report their worst experiences, their biggest struggles, when I'm sure I could have sent out a message. What's like, tell me a moment where you just feel like you're flying as a writer. Tell me a real high point for you during the process of writing. Tell me about a piece of writing, a scene, a line, a story, an achievement of which you are super proud. I know all of these authors could have come back to me and given me that. And maybe one day we'll do that. You know, maybe one day we'll just have this lovely celebration of high points because there is a reason why we write. And even I, suffering so much during it, you know, really hating myself, I keep coming back to it. And I think there's lots of positives in it. And I think it is a lovely practice for me and I think it's an emotional and personal one and you know I'm an atheist with like mild Buddhist leadings so don't get me wrong when I say I think it's a spiritual path but I really think it can be a path of self-discovery and it can 
help you get in touch with yourself and there can be real value in that really really do think that right so um we'll <laughs> we'll continue this mini series on the psychology of writing next time thank you for bearing with me thank you for sticking around as i trudge down sort of like slight side routes um i'm really enjoying doing this look if you have any questions about writing and indeed about the psychology of writing do drop me a line via my website timclairpoet.co.uk there's a contact me box where you can drop me an email i read every single one thank you to all of you who've supported my show via the coffee page it means a lot team if you're listening to this i love you dearly i hope you can have some fun writing today or at least this week just do something small have a go and see where it takes you take care and I'll see you next time.